and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our transfer market insiders and pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, the latest on the summer's biggest transfer story as Cristiano Ronaldo looks set to swap Madrid for Turin. Can Juventus get the deal over the line? We look at the ripples caused by such a sensational move and how it could affect the positions of Neymar, Kylian Mbappe, Philip Coutinho and Eden Hazard as Madrid looks to replace him with a Galactico. Wilfred Zaha is on the radar of Everton as Marco Silva looks for a top-class winger to add dynamism and pace to his front line. And as Gareth Southgate leads England to an unlikely World Cup semi-final, we assess his team's strengths and weaknesses. Okay, we're going to start with perhaps the biggest transfer story that you could have imagined. Uh, Hard to believe that Cristiano Ronaldo would have been potentially on the move uh, in seasons gone by. But here we are. It looks like Cristiano Ronaldo is on the verge of a move to Italy. Duncan, what is the latest on this transfer? The latest I am hearing on this is that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's rejected the offer of a a new contract that was made by Real Madrid in response um, to Juventus making a formal offer for the player's services and meeting the financial terms Cristiano Ronaldo wanted for his new contract. It's a story we we broke in Daily Record last week. Um, It's very much, uh, it was described to me as uh, Real Madrid waking up and realizing they had a real problem in their hands. Uh, this has gone on for well over a year. Um, Ronaldo has been angered by numerous ways in which he's been handled by Madrid, the failure to um, offer him the financial terms they promised over a year ago, um, the way he's been talked about in the Madrid press, the, his tax problems over there, perceived lack of support from the club. Um, and. I'd got to the point where he was openly um, uh, discussing offers from other clubs in Europe. Uh, A strong offer came in on the financial terms he wanted from Juventus. Juventus then backed that up by proposing a 100 million euro transfer fee. Madrid's response was, um, actually, we will make you a new offer of a contract. He's, I'm told, he's taken a look at that contract, uh, decided it's not satisfactory for him has told people around him that he cannot be persuaded and, and intends to leave the club. Um, the terms are not signed with Juventus, but if you were asked, asking me where I would bet my money on him being for next season, everything is pointing towards him being a Juventus player. I, I would concur with that, Duncan. Um, having spoken to uh, parties uh, on both sides of this negotiation, um, there seems to be uh, a will, certainly, to uh, make the transfer happen. I, I, I think it's true that Real probably believed it would never happen because we've had this situation with Cristiano on many occasions before when he's had a transfer, uh, a contract upgrade um, to stay at Real Madrid. However, this seems to be brewing for, for at least a year, if not more. Um, he's very annoyed at the prospect of Real bringing in new Galacticos this summer. Um, who may well supersede him in terms of being the superstar player at the club. 
uh, Florentino Perez, the president, has acknowledged that his team needs to be refreshed and renewed, younger, more exciting talent. Whether or not that's um, the case with regards to Ronaldo staying is up for question. Um, what's holding the transfer up right now, to my knowledge, is that um, due to um, the enormity of investment uh, on Juve's side with regards to the transfer fee and the net salary, which they have agreed with Cristiano Ronaldo and his advisors, that Juventus are trying not to ham-fist themselves with regards to any other deals they can do in the market, i.e. not have to sell um, other key players or indeed prevent themselves from at least augmenting the squad they have in order to challenge again for the Champions League next season. It was the fashion over the last few years <clears throat> when you come to elite clubs and transfer fees were paid in, in one instalment, which was unheard of beforehand. It was always paid usually in uh, instalments of equal measure over the course of the contract uh, the player signed. So, for instance, of 100 million euros, it would be 25 million euros of the fee per season of contract completed. Now, Madrid are asking for the money to be paid up front, and, and I think they're within their rights, given that Ronaldo's actual buyout clause is near a billion euros and not 100 million euros or pounds, um, whereas Juventus are volunteering to pay around half of the fee up front, and then a acknowledged flat fee of up to 100 million euros, but possibly with the idea that they can pay add-ons depending on success of the club, Ronaldo's appearances, etc., etc. I.e., what they're saying is we need some insurance here. Yes, he's the World Player of the Year. Um, yes, he is an exceptional talent and you know remains obviously at the height of his game right now. But we're signing a four-year deal here for a guy who will complete contract at 37. What we don't want is to be paying over the odds if he if he does not perform at that high level for the next four years. We think this is both practical and realistic. And what Real Madrid are saying is, no, it's not practical and realistic because you're getting our best player and we, and you're also getting on the cheap. So we need you to pay up front. And obviously what we know about Real Madrid is they're, they're intending to spend probably in the region of 300 million euros themselves this summer on one or two players, well, two players, I should say. Um, and therefore, they need that money as well for their own FFP. So what we're getting here is, is the after effect, if you like, the um, of uh, the EC Milan um, European football ban by UEFA for fair, uh, financial fair play violation, um, extending to other league clubs who are now seeing that they have to get their house in order and be more considerate when it comes to what they spend and what they spend on wages. Otherwise, they could be facing the kind of sanctions that Milan... I mean, when Milan get a ban, everyone thinks, oh, my God, this is serious. And now other clubs like Madrid, like Juventus, Manchester United are thinking we've got to do the same thing. So you're talking about there that uh, Madrid are going to spend up to 300 million euros or perhaps even more than that. Who are the names on their list, guys? I think look, with, with Cristiano Ronaldo, it is always going to be a PR exercise for Real Madrid. He has been their key player for the best part of a decade. Um, Florentino Perez has been trying to work out a strategy to move him out of the club. And with Florentino Perez, he's an elected president, so it has to go down well with the fans. The problem for him here is it's kind of moved out of his control in that he's antagonised uh, Ronaldo to an extent where Ronaldo is, instead of... Um, petitioning him for a new contract because he wants to remain at Madrid. He's now driving to, to go elsewhere. 
um, that means that there's more pressure than ever for Florentino Perez to deliver <coughs> big name um, replacements that appease the Madrid fans. Obviously, a key part of Ronaldo, uh, Ronaldo's discontent at Madrid has been Florentino Perez's extensive, uh, almost embarrassing pursuit of Neymar. Um, something that's often cited by people around Cristiano is, is Florentino Perez publicly stating um, that Neymar could become the World Player of the Year if he was to join Real Madrid on the same day and at the same event in which um, uh, Ronaldo won his last Ballon d'Or. That went down extremely badly. Neymar remains a key target for Florentino Perez. I think, um, certainly from Qatar's point of view, it's impossible for the player to go to, to Madrid this summer. They just outright refuse to sell him after just one season at the club and a season in which he's um, repeatedly caused trouble, re repeatedly agitated for that move to Spain, either to Madrid or back to Barcelona. And they, they're not prepared to, um, to deal with the embarrassment of allowing, of being seen to have that move manipulated around them. So Neymar is off the agenda for this summer, as far as PSG concerned, and I think I think Florentino Perez is, is aware of that. Um, he will have noticed that Neymar's camp is now agitating for Paris Saint-Germain to sign Felipe Coutinho this summer. Um, they actually tried that in January, but they're now agitating for it again in the summer. Basically, Neymar saying, bring my pal um, to Paris and I'll, be, I'll behave better next season to the Qataris. But again, that's a signal that he's difficult to get. Therefore, who else do you look at? Well, Kylian Mbappe was very close to joining Real Madrid last summer. Um, the club thought they had them. They agreed personal terms with him and his father, and Mbappe reneged on them to, to move to Paris Saint-Germain. I think Mbappe is a more realistic target. Um, the noises coming out of Paris are that they might be prepared to do a deal on Mbappe if they have to do that um, to retain Neymar and to deal with the financial fair play issues that are not completely resolved with UEFA at the moment. So although um, Florentino Perez made a big show of making a statement last week um, about a story that they were trying to get Mbappe again and making an official statement on the, the, um, the Real Madrid club website uh, stating that, that the story was untrue, that has been seen as very much, a, again, a PR move to try and calm down Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, Madrid don't usually make statements on the website about transfer activity. Um, they, they made a similar one about Neymar um, in, a, I think, two days previously. Uh, uncharacteristic for them. So with Real Madrid, it's, it's complex. It's made me even more complex by Cristiano's impending departure. Um, as we all know, Ronaldo effectively played as a centre-forward for most of last season and did it so with incredible uh, goal-scoring success. Uh, Benzema was marginalised, so when Madrid make a purchase to replace Ronaldo, they have to decide whether or not they buy an out-and-out -out striker or they buy a player who can play where Ronaldo used to play, which was on the left or the right side of an attacking three, and still get the, the goal return and assists that they can rely on from both players. So you get to replace Ronaldo, you effectively need two players. That's that's obvious. With um, Mbappe, um, I think it's complicated, but 
Real Madrid are fairly confident they can pursue him with some success, but they're not entirely sure uh, that's going to happen. If you don't get Mbappe, where do you go next? Well, most most obvious one is to go to Harry Kane. Um, obviously, they've been told that Harry Kane is not for sale, and we know Daniel Levy is a very difficult person to negotiate with. Um, it's been suggested to me um, that Real would be willing to offer Gareth Bale plus around 150 million euros to Tottenham for Gareth Bale. Um, but in the noise that Gareth Bale is not that keen on going back to Tottenham. So that, again, is difficult logistically and from the personalities point of view. And by that, I mean Bale himself and Daniel Levy. I think Levy has said privately that they don't see Bale as a very good fit into what has now become a young, dynamic team. And Bale at 28 with his recent um, missing game time through injuries, etc., especially soft tissue injuries, um, might not be a good investment for Tottenham, especially as they would have to at least equal his Real Madrid salary, which would blow their own salary um, structure out of the water. Where do you go next? Well, Aiden Hazard has been for quite openly speaking about how it might be a dream, in his words, to move to Real Madrid. So Hazard, who I think has become very, very frustrated um, with Chelsea's modus operandi regarding transfers, managers, general, you know, just like the club that has really descended into farce this summer with regards to what's happened in wake of Roman Brandwich's UK visa being rejected, um, the calamitous uh, failure to sort out the managerial situation by paying off Antonio Conte and bringing in Sarri or anyone to replace him and the ongoing legal arguments over that. And someone like Hazard has a look at that and thinks, am I really at the right club um, where I'm going to win you know, the top trophies? Um, my stock's high, I'm playing well in the World Cup, I'm in the semi-final um, so far, etc. So why don't I make hay while the sun shines? Hazard has also been registered interest with Barcelona, uh, as in Barcelona would, would like him to complete uh, their new attacking triumvirate um, and play on the right or left side there. So I think Hazard's stock is high with both of the Spanish uh, giant clubs. And with Madrid, with money in the bank, and um, certainly with Perez willing to spend it, I think you will see. I think we we'll see a very, very busy summer, a very expensive summer for Real Madrid. Um, they're pursuing all of those four players that we've spoken about as we speak. Some with more intensity than others, but what we can be sure is that at least two new Galacticos will be unveiled at Santiago Bernabeu this summer. Is there any indication in that Chelsea would be interested in selling Hazards and how much that would take? Um, They've not given a price because it'd be silly to Johnny, but uh, my understanding is that they accept in the region of, uh, of 100 to 130 million euros for a player um, that they bought relatively cheaply um, when they got him from Lille uh, some six years ago. It constitutes a large profit. Unfortunately, as I said, the transfer policy is so chaotic at Chelsea right now that um, no manager, no one knows who they would buy to replace him. So it's, it's just a bit weird. Uh, really, I mean, they're not playing Champions League next season either, remember, so you've got a whole host of players at Chelsea are thinking uh, they're facing a rather dodgy uh, European Europa League campaign this season, one which you know, none of them are very much used to and probably don't want. So Hazard might not be the only player um, wanting out, and of course we've spoken last week about William and Barcelona, or William and Manchester United, so with no one actually at the helm at Chelsea to control 
players in and out and to recommend um, what what happens when those players leave or and how to recruit, then that chaos is going to affect Chelsea badly. The transfer window is looking for a new sponsor. A deal would put your company at the top of our show and expose your brand to the thousands of transfer window listeners. If this is something that appeals, please get in touch via the usual channels on social media. Chelsea, Chelsea have been aware of the possibility of losing Hazard for well over six months. Um, so long before uh, the, the Conte situation descended into, into the total chaos it is now, um, they had been proposing the idea of a, of a new improved contract to Hazard and hadn't been getting particularly far with it and realised that if Hazard refused to, to sign a new contract, they'd have, to, they'd have to seriously consider selling him this summer and cashing in. And, and they're in the same situation with Willian. They were aware that they might not be able to get Willian to commit to a new contract. Um, and Willian's coming down to two years. Um, the new Manchester United wanted them last summer thought Manchester United come, might come back in again this summer. They now have Barcelona involved and, and they're, they're, you know, they're very aware of happening, what's happening with Barcelona because Kia Jurabshin is um, handling that deal. Kia Jurabshin, as we've discussed on the transfer window before, is one of the few agents that Chelsea um, deal uh, repeatedly uh, with at present. So they... It's no surprise that they've got themselves into this situation and that they, they had these worries about these players beforehand and, and everything has deteriorated on the playing field and around the playing field since then. So if you're Eden Hazard, no, no surprise when you're, you're watching what's happening with Cristiano Ronaldo. You know that Real Madrid have, have uh, been courting you without actually um, putting an offer in for two, three seasons. And um, you see... Also, you have the potential to win the World Cup in a, in, in a few days' time. And uh, what better for Florentino Perez to be able to say, I've just, I've just signed um, one of the players who won the World Cup as a, as a replacement for Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, <coughs> and the, given the Florentino's reputation, Duncan, you wouldn't be surprised if Florentino was actually sitting there waiting for the World Cup final to happen before he chose the player that he was going to buy. Well, you've just got to look at the last World Cup when yeah. when James Rodriguez um, was exceptional for Colombia and went from not even being on the recruitment list uh, for Real Madrid to I think they paid the third highest transfer fee of all time for him um, uh, before I think actually the deal was completed before the World Cup was finished if I remember correctly. That's that's how how um, responsive. Uh, Florentino Perez can be to performances in international tournaments, which kind of goes against the grain of of most recruitment in in elite European football clubs these days. People have generally try and avoid signing players off the back of good tournaments, whereas I think Florentino, as you say, watches the World Cup, sees who's done well and thinks, yeah, I can sell that one to the fans. Uh, <clears throat> I think, to be fair, in the case of... Um, Mbappe or Hazard, or even Kane for that matter, we can say that they've had exceptional um, seasons uh, in their, well, maybe not in the case of Hazard uh, in the Premier League, but his reputation is built more upon um, his club football and it has been international football. Uh, Mbappe, I'd say, uh, is the case as well. Kane certainly is the case, having scored in excess of 20 goals for three consecutive seasons. So uh, it wouldn't be quite the um, impulse purchase that Hannes Rodriguez was, but at the same time, 
um, as I said, with Real Madrid, you can be sure that um, they, they, as far as players are concerned, and I mean this in the, in the human sense, not in the jewellery sense, Florentino likes a bit of bling. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to move on to a club we discussed last week uh, with when we brought you news of uh, Everton's uh, moves for Kieran Tierney. We had detail how difficult that deal was going to be to get over the line, and it appears that the, they have now dropped their interest. But there's another player that they are interested in, which uh, is coming from Crystal Palace, potentially. Yes, um, Marco Silva, uh, the new manager at Everton, is uh, has been asking for a top uh, left winger. And uh, his leading choice for the position is, is Wilfred Zaha at Crystal Palace, who um, I think most people will credit with being fundamental to um, Crystal Palace's survival um, last season. Um, a key uh, member of their attack. Interesting, I think, that Marco Silva wants to use him as a left winger when I think a lot of Zaha's success at Crystal Palace was when he was allowed to operate almost as a free spirit. And, it, and I'm told from people who work with them that that very much suits his playing style. Um, it's going to be a very expensive deal for transfer fee. Um, it's also going to be a very expensive deal in terms of contract. I think Zaha signed a new contract with Crystal Palace recently um, at over £100,000 a week. And I'm told that his uh, representatives um, see the opportunity to move this summer as a, as a major chance to, um, to cash in again. I think it's going to be a difficult deal for Everton to get um, over the, the finish line. Um, one, of, one of the things I'm told about Zaha is he, he very much found it difficult living in Manchester in the north of England when, when Manchester United signed him, one of Alex Ferguson's last signings as manager. And um, his feels he played a lot better um, and has restored his career by moving down to London. Um, and I think his preference would be to remain in the London area if at all possible, which raises the possibility of, of a move to Chelsea, um, having just discussed that, that Chelsea have been preparing um, for the chance that Hazard and William might leave this summer. Zaha, I think, is a player that would fit as a, as a potential replacement. Um, cheaper uh, than either of those two, uh, younger. Um, and, as I say, would prefer to stay in London, so um, probably easier for them to deal with than Everton. Um, another player that Everton are looking at, the second choice on their list, is Malcolm, um, the Bordeaux winger. A uh, young Brazilian that has been extensively scouted by a lot of the leading Premier League clubs um, of interest to Arsenal, has been of major interest to Manchester United. Again, I think Everton will find it difficult to put together the money and maybe not so hard to get the, the salary for Malcolm, but still um, whether they can put together the whole package is, is open to question at the moment. But it shows their ambitions um, and it shows Marco Silva's desire to, to put uh, younger, um, more capable players in the team than the recruitment strategy that Everton followed last summer, which caused them such problems um, in, their, in the, the first campaign after they spent, they actually spent more money in transfer fees last year than, than Manchester United, but uh, ended up sacking their manager and putting Sam Dyson in place to just uh, 
just ensure survival. My understanding, Duncan, was that um, when initial and informal contact was made between Crystal Palace and Everton regarding Zaha and um, Everton suggested, uh, the Everton um, representative suggested that they would be willing to pay around £35 million plus add-ons <clears throat> for Zaha. Um, the response was, you paid 50 for Gilfie Sigurdsson. Do you think we're stupid? <laughs> so um, I, I agree. I think Zaha will be a very costly transfer um, for any club because Palace will hold out for, I think, in excess of 60, probably 70 million pounds for a player who <sighs> I don't think he's done enough to obviously get, you know, justify that kind of price tag. But unfortunately, that is the market that we are now in, and especially between Premier League clubs. I mean, ironically, there's also interest, and this is like, you know, the bizarre America and this from Newcastle and resetting Andros Townsend, who spent a very brief season in Newcastle before then going back. To, uh, to to play for Crystal Palace, having played for Tottenham, and it's true these these young guys who were brought up in London who've played for London teams, and you, they don't seem to adapt very well when they when they move um, far further north. And it's quite odd, but I, I can see why, um, as you've said, Duncan, that Zaha to Chelsea makes more sense, both for that personal reason, but also because they're is a, a very, very real possibility that they will lose Hazard and or William as well. So Zaha becomes a direct one-for-one -one replacement. I think it, we should also add that Crystal Palace do need to raise funds if they're going to buy. I'm told they've got um, virtually nothing available to spend in the transfer market, so they're dependent on moving players out. And obviously they've got a lot of... Um, dead or dying wood in there from the, the succession of, of managers they brought in to, to keep them in the division who were all allowed um, to sign uh, players at, at higher salaries than were probably realistic for their abilities um, and who they'd like to get out. But obviously when you're overpaying a player um, who's not particularly highly regarded, it's difficult to get them out. So Zaha then becomes the kind of golden ticket in that if they have one and hopefully more than one club with significant transfer uh, funds available to them to spend interested in the player then you try and uh, market up the price and, and and take the money from the highest bidder so you can do a bit of restructuring work yourself they've also got the um impending uh building of the new stand as well duncan at, at, um yeah at crystal palace which uh, while they may and probably have borrowed money to um, to have that done, the interest payments will be much greater than you get on the high street. So again, they're burdening themselves with a bit of debt, which still comes into to, um, financial fair play, etc. As well, so I do think that you're right in, in saying that you know they will have to sell maybe one, maybe even more than that, plus get rid of some other players who are on high salaries. So interesting summer for Crystal Palace, especially as we're now you know in you know fairly deep into the transfer window, and it's been very obvious that. Things happening in the World Cup have, have prevented transfers from really kicking in and, and getting going. We've had relatively little business, especially compared to this time last year, in the first seven, six, uh, eight weeks of the transfer window being open. And remember, this is a restricted window um, because the Premier League clubs voted to um, have it closed before the games begin on August 11th, which is you know seeming more and more like a ridiculous decision, given how little business has been done and how much still needs to be done. 
So I think the next few weeks are going to be a bit, bit crazy. Okay, well, discussing the World Cup is something that we're going to have to do. And, uh, of course, England now in the semi-finals playing against Croatia uh, tomorrow night. And we've got the other semi-final tonight, Belgium against France. Do we think England are looking like realistic winners of this competition? Well, they're looking realistic winners of this competition because this competition, the way this competition has panned out, um, it's a bit like... Uh, about like Wimbledon this year, if you like, where the first ten seeds in the in the women's draw have all been eliminated before fourth round day. Um, so hence we've seen uh, tournament favourites like Spain, Argentina, Brazil, all Germany, all uh, exit the tournament uh, much um, quicker or much more quickly than we thought they would. Um, that's not to to in any way downgrade England's um, performances nor their progress so far. Uh, I think what they've done under Gareth Southgate has been to be very pragmatic um, and play in a way that they know will obviously be best to defeat the opponents that they face, which is something which past England managers have not been prepared to do. Um, I think there's various uh, factors which are responsible for the success so far of this squad, but I think the most important one is that they are a genuinely young squad and certainly a young first eleven <clears throat> who... I've seen play without fear. And I go back to year 2004 and seeing Wayne Rooney play probably the best three weeks football of his life um, at the age of 18 uh, for England. Um, and what England have got is not the talent of that 18-year-old Wayne Rooney at their disposal, but what they've got is the mentality in maybe five or six of those young players, maybe even more. And that they've decided that, and this is their words, not mine, make their own history. Therefore, not play <clears throat> with the weight of the three-line shirt on their back, but play with the freedom and intensity that they <clears throat> know that they're capable of. And in doing so, that's why they've got this far. They've also had a pretty easy draw. I mean, let's not beat around the bush here. Colombia, Sweden, now Croatia. Potentially the easiest draw in the history of the, the World Cup in terms of getting to a final, Duncan. Um, yeah, look, I think you've got to praise England for um, doing a lot of the things that repeated England squads and repeated England managers haven't done. So they, uh, Gareth Southgate and his assistant, um, Steve Holland, who is very highly regarded within the game, um, you know, worked with Jose Mourinho at Chelsea, um, not out of Jose Mourinho's choice. He was there when Mourinho arrived at the club. It was a standard uh, uh, assistant manager ploy with Chelsea to keep keep someone there, regardless to who the manager is. And he was very highly thought of by Mourinho and his assistants, which tells you that the, the man is a good coach um, and knows what he's about. And I think you see that in the way that they've they've changed the basic setup of the team um, to maximise their strengths in terms of having very good uh, delivery from the wing backs, um, using Lingard and Sterling in roles that, that break the opposition lines, um, getting as many of the players that they they regard as being the top players in the eleven as possible. So they use Walker as a as a centre back, which. He obviously has weaknesses there, but so far his weaknesses have been um, outweighed by his strengths that he adds to the team. And and the preparation um, for opponents, and particularly at set pieces, 
Um, they've been helped uh, by uh, petitioning FIFA for a, a change of application in the rules um, uh, after the first game. Something I've never seen at a major tournament or any major competition, uh, not that uh, FIFA or UEFA would not only tell the referees to apply the rules differently after a complaint, but talk about that publicly. Now, I've never experienced that in football before, but they made the complaint, it worked for them, and their set-piece preparation is brilliant. I mean, they, they are scoring these set-piece goals because their movement and organisation, um, the way they're blocking opponents' runs, uh, the way they have uh, multiple targets, Stones, Maguire and Kane, so that they, they, they provide the opposition with a lot of individuals to worry about, is working for them. Um, as for having the easiest run, I think, I think you're right about that. I mean, I was looking at this the other day. I think the last time a team got to the final of the World Cup without playing a former finalist was 1966. Um, and the last time uh, a team won the World Cup without playing a former winner, which England could do if, uh, if Belgium knock out France, was in 1962. So they, they got an easy group, um, which they, you know, they, they stumbled a bit in the first game, but got through it. Um, and then they got through a difficult tie against Colombia, albeit um, with the fortune of a, of a penalty kick coming off the underside of the bar and not going in. But... Uh, they took their penalties well. I think even Jordan Henderson's penalty, the one that saved, wasn't a bad one. And their, and their goalkeeper did his homework and, and made good saves. So that they, they've been performing. And as, as people say, you can, only, you can only defeat the opponents you come up against. And they have managed to either defeat or get through them. Um, they've only had four shots and targets in, the, in their two uh, knockout games. Um, three of them have gone in. One of them was a penalty. I think there is an element where the team is susceptible, but they haven't really been tested because, for example, Colombia decided um, to play defensively against them, probably because they were missing their most creative midfielder um, or midfielder forward, James Rodriguez, um, and, and that didn't work for them. But when they decided to go after England's defence, they created a lot of chances. The question is whether... Um, any of the opponents that play them next, whether Croatia can do that, and if they get to the final, whether Belgium or, um, or France can, can take advantage of what seem to be weaknesses in England's defence and, and set up. Um, and those disadvantages outweigh their strengths from set pieces and, and, and the obvious belief and unity the team has. I think also to add to that, um, Duncan, um... In a game against Sweden, which uh, they controlled possession and pretty much controlled a lot of the game in terms of uh, territorial, et cetera, et cetera. When your goalkeeper's man in the match, I'd be slightly worried. Because um, yes. he, he did make some exceptional saves against a fairly ordinary Sweden attack who'd had the least shots on target of any team in the competition up until they played England. And, you know, Pickford was outstanding in that game and, and made some brilliant saves. As I said... It's, it's a bit like David De Gea being you know, my United's player of the year for the last five years. You think to yourself, well, there's actually something wrong there somewhere else, not to you know, in any way denigrate the, um, the performance of the goalkeeper. That needs fixing. And I think that's where Croatia are going to test England in that you know, Pickford has been outstanding, and I'm not saying he's not going to continue to be, but every player has, its lim has his limit of things that he can achieve. 
So if the England defence, which will come under more pressure, I, I think, against Croatia than uh, any other game so far in this tournament, um, don't give Pickford the protection he needs, then England will be in trouble. Croatia have, Croatia have an excellent midfield, um, possibly the best midfield in the tournament um, with Rakitic, Modric. Um, uh, their creativity, and I think Modric has been exceptional in this World Cup, um, clearly sees it as, as his opportunity at 32 to, to win a major tournament. Um, so, and, and for all I like England's setup and the way that they've, they've put Lingard and um, Deli Ali in there to, to, to worry other defences, they've always got to be conscious of, of what those two are going to do in the ball, as well as Sterling, who I think has been uh, much maligned in terms of his, his contribution to the team is fundamental. Um, and the way he, he draws uh, opposition defenders around and creates space for other players. But England have got that set up where they're banking on creativity in midfield. And um, I wonder how Jordan Henderson does by himself against Modric uh, and Rakitic. Um, and probably Borisovic in, the, in a three-man midfield that I would expect Croatia to play in this game. Um, and where England are in a, in a game where they don't have um, control either of the ball or of the, the general um, direction of the match. Yeah, I was going to cut in and say that about uh, Croatia's midfields, because obviously England have a lot of flexibility and fluidity in there, but they don't have a lot of rigidity. Do you think that's something, Ian, that they might look to inject into this game to give them more of a hold over that midfield battle? It's a difficult one for them to change the way that they set up, uh, Johnny, because um, Eric Dyer has not played... Um, as much as people expect them to, because John Henderson's performances have been so so good, and Dele Alli has actually dropped uh, in behind a lot of the time to allow Sterling and Lingard to move forward. So, I think um, Carl Southgate, as as despite his pragmatism um, so far in terms of the way that he's mixed play up, uh, I think we'll see England go long a lot more against Croatia than we have so far, because they want to bypass the midfield uh, that Croatia can um, intercept, block or uh, transition play quickly, which is what they've been doing against other teams. So I think we will see more long passes hit towards Ali and Kane up front or even Sterling in behind um, in order for them to establish a lead in the game and therefore make Croatia chase and hope that they can then obviously hit on the counter again. I think that's Southgate's tactic. That's what's going to be uh, they're going to rely on that. Um, I don't think we've seen a plan B yet from England. And if they go a goal down, um, well, there will have to be a plan B. And it'll be fascinating to see what that plan B is. I suspect it'll be reverting to 4-4-1-1 or 4-4-2. Um, and uh, this three-man defence, which is much lauded, will suddenly become a much uh, more rigid ba uh, uh, bank of four with four in front as well in order to prevent any more any further goals going in and therefore putting England out of the game. So, as I said, we will be fascinating to see how it goes, but I suspect the game plan will be to um, set off Croatia at least um, to the halfway line, allow them possession where they can't be hurt, knock balls long, hopefully get a goal and a foothold in the game, and then hit on the break. And in terms of eventual winners, Duncan... I think it, I think it's really hard to call. I, I think any any of these teams can win it. Um, I, you know, as Ian says, it's the most open World Cup um, we've seen 
all the uh, all the established powers um, are out. Uh, the only team, the only nation that's won it before is France, um, and I don't see France. And that's true. <laughs> you forget about it. Being Scottish, we tend so to like that. They it, forget they won it. <laughs> yeah, they've only won it at home, so it doesn't really count, does it? And and the goal. And, and so the, France only won it at home as well. Um, I think I think it, it is very open. I don't think uh, France's history as as past winners is of of a huge advantage to them because it's they have a relatively young team in this tournament. Um, I so I have question marks about any team that makes the final um, mentally uh, how they respond to being in that situation, which therefore I see it as as essentially being anyone's World Cup. Um, which could could very well come down to, you know, as as managers talk about Champions League coming down to the fine details. I could see this World World Cup coming down to the fine details of a refereeing decision. You know, we saw Brazil go out um, after a ridiculous um, VAR decision where, you know, Vincent Company not only took Gabriel Jesus studs up uh, both feet out of control with one leg, he then hit him with the second leg. Um, with a player who's what four yards from goal, um, and that wasn't penalised as a penalty. Um, I think if if Brazil get the penalty in that game, they win that match. Um, Belgium were, were tactically brilliant, uh, spotted the flaws in Brazil, took advantage of them superbly, but we're looking really on on the ropes um, as Brazil went at them. And, and if Thibaut Courtois hadn't had that exceptional game, if that penalty had not been overruled, um, I think Brazil would still be in it. But um, the fine detail mean Belgium are in the semi-final and with a very, very good chance of winning the World Cup, just like everyone else is in the, in the last four. I say this, Johnny. My one concern, which <clears throat> probably isn't um, been brought up by most people with regards to how this World Cup pans out, is Novichok. <laughs> and I'll leave, I'll leave, I'll leave our <laughs> listeners to interpret however they want that. But I believe that could be a, a problem. Okay, moving on to our quickfire rounds. This week, we're going to look at the members of the England squad whose values have increased out in Russia. So we're going to start, first of all, with you, Ian. Who's your player and how much has his value increased by? My first one would be Kieran Trippier, um, an obvious one, Johnny. <clears throat> um, I think he's slipped to fourth now in terms of chances created and assists in the World Cup uh, so far. But someone who has, has made uh, a lot of progress, but I wouldn't say astonishing progress at, at Tottenham last year. Um, but someone who has absolutely been in his element playing in that position of right wing back. I think his defending is underrated. I think that's been pretty good too. But his crossing corners um, have been exceptional and he has been a key member uh, of Gareth Southgate's squad in terms of when the other players see him over the ball, if it's a set piece, etc., then they know they're going to get a delivery which is going to give them a chance to score. And you cannot underestimate um, just how much uh, importance that has for the other players in terms of confidence. So if he was worth, let's say, I don't know, £25 million before the World Cup, I'd say he's now looking at at least his former colleague Kyle Walker's £50 million transfer to Manchester City um, should he leave. Duncan. 
Um, I think uh, Jordan Pickford uh, has obviously increased his value with uh, with being the, the the England goalkeeper who, who wins a penalty shootout, and then um, as Ian points out, the three very classy saves he came up with against Sweden, and you know Sweden only got three shots on target in that game, but they were good ones, and and I think they were all from Berg. I think they were all from the same same player. That he saved, um, who the Swedish press had been saying was was due a goal in the World Cup because he played so well, um, and was denied it by Pickford. I personally, I still have doubts about Pickford as a goalkeeper. Um, I always felt he was a player, he's one of these goalkeepers who um, kind of um, dazzles a bit his ability to bring off impressive saves, but doesn't really control his box very well. I always prefer goalkeepers of the yeah, Edwin van der Sar type who who marshal the box and marshal his defence to prevent chances ever happening. However, he does, it, it, the, the way he's responded to the World Cup and the way he's delivered in moments of pressure um, says a lot for his uh, mental attitude um, and his maturity. And if he has that element to him, then he could, as possible, he can learn the other elements of, of being a top goalkeeper. Um, in terms of value, he cost £25 million for Everton, um, which I thought was a high fee a year ago. But I think if they were to, to put him on the market tomorrow, they'd easily uh, double that price as, a, as an England goalkeeper um, with, with this month of, uh, of play behind him. So, Johnny, I'm going to go for um, uh, a player who has been ridiculed, maligned, uh, compared to uh, crabs and oil tankers for his sideways passing and his ability to turn, his lack of pace. But Jordan Henderson, Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. Well, I mean, honestly, if a player has excelled at this World Cup, if a player has surprised us, has taken us really you know, by the scruff of our necks and said, look, I am actually quite a good player here. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to, make you, I'm going to show you how good I am. And it's, it's not about, you know, playing in big games or his improvement. I think what it's about with John Henderson is realising that in a, a tournament situation where it's not similar style of play to the Premier League, where he does get caught in position or lost or makes mistakes... He has been, for me, the player who has shown that he's got the ability to read the game. If he's got that little extra quarter, half second to make the pass, he makes the pass. People say he doesn't pass forward. Sensational pass against Sweden for Sterling and behind where Sterling should have scored. And that's not the only one. He's done, he's done that before. He's done that three or four times in the competition already. And he's become a little bit of a fashion to, uh, to, to, to talk up. But that's only because he's been so outstanding. So Henderson, who cost Liverpool probably about five quid in a packet of crisps, and if he didn't, then, then that's what he should have cost, um, is probably worth, I think, around the sort of 40, 50 million mark as a central midfielder if he can reproduce his World Cup form for Liverpool. Um, and look, you know, that's been a big surprise to a lot of people, I, myself included, but um, I, I would hope, he seems a really good lad as well, and I would hope that he can um, take his experience to the World Cup and continue to improve. I don't know where you buy your crisps, perhaps Waitrose, but I think uh, Jordan Henderson was 18 million quid, so... <laughs> well, do you know what? Waitrose probably got a line of crisps about 18 million quid, Johnny. Not that I do shop there. I'll tell you a story about Jordan Henderson's sale from uh, Sunderland, wasn't it, to, to Liverpool. 
the um, when Liverpool expressed an interest, uh, the, I think Steve Bruce was the manager at the time, and he was asked whether or whether the, he would advise selling him or not, and uh, he he said, "Yeah, I think if they if they offer us a certain um, price, we should take that for him." Um, Liverpool came in, and their first offer was twice what Steve Bruce had identified as the. Uh, as the realistic price for Jordan Henderson, so there wasn't there wasn't a lot of decision making involved, and and yes, it was a very expensive packet of crisps at the time. But also, Duncan, we should contextualise that by saying that both Liverpool and Manchester United at that time were pursuing Phil Jones, and obviously Jones chose Manchester United, and I think Liverpool, um, being Liverpool, were kind of forced or coerced to act on the back of publicly losing out on Jones, and so I think they probably. Opt- offered more than what they should have done for Henderson on the back of, well, we need to get someone in. So there's a little bit of context there. Duncan, who's your next player? I think um, it, w- I would go for Harry Maguire, um, who's, uh, who's reached uh, stellar status in England of his performances in the World Cup. Um, and his memes? <laughs> his memes, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's worth a few million on the transfer fee as well. Um, I, I think in, in terms of, of talking about price for Harry Maguire, he now he's he's placed himself in that bracket of uh, of top centre backs, and we saw the price for a top centre back in in the Premier League these days is fifty million up. Um, he's English, so do you get the whole homegrown um, shortage of English players in most of the top team squads? So that adds to his value. Um, personally, I think I don't think he's worth that. Um, I, th- I think he's got um, a number of flaws in his game. Um, he's he's very good at, at um, clearing aerial balls. He's very confident on the ball, but I'm not sure his confident matches his actual ability on, on the ball. And he's one of all three of those centre-backs, in fact, I think have errors in them um, in, in game situations. And we've seen them um, during the tournament, but they haven't really been exploited yet. But in terms of value in the Premier League, yeah, fifty million plus because of his status and because he's English. I'd just add to that, <clears throat> Duncan, that I spoke to one Premier League centre forward who played against Maguire um, last season on a couple of occasions, and described him as being like a big baby, but wearing boxing gloves. <laughs> as a piece to say, trying to describe it, uh, he seems like a soft guy, but you know he's not. He will absolutely, you know, he. Physically, he will definitely test you in every single challenge. And um, despite what appears to be a set of, you know, he's not the most quick centre-half, but I, th- I think he's shown in this tournament, um, and a lot for Leicester City last season, to be fair, that he can reach where the ball's going quite well. And so he, he, any lack of pace is made up for by a reading of the game that allows him to get in the right position to, to block and transition play. So, yeah, I think he's been a revelation. And I will take uh, that comment on um, Maguire onto my next player, Johnny, who is Jesse Lingard. Now, Lingard's a player I watched for a season on loan at Brighton in the Championship three years ago. And I watched him maybe 20 times. And I just didn't see him becoming a Manchester United player. I really didn't. His attitude was good, but he seemed timid. Uh, at the time, he seemed um, a bit uh, apprehensive about expressing his obvious talent when it came to um, match time. 
he, on the training field, he was sensational, as many players are. But then on the field of play, during a competitive match, he kind of went into him within himself and withdrew and, and didn't really do himself justice and, and show the kind of skill and ability to change games, which he has. Now, I think it's a very good season at Manchester United, and I think um, his goal against Panama was one of the highlights of the tournament so far. Um, so, I, I, like for me, Jesse Lingard, you know, was probably worth about I don't know eighteen, twenty million quid before this tournament. But I, I genuinely think his 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 um, ability off the ball, in terms of um, getting the ball back, his work rate, um, and also obviously his um, attacking play, getting in between the lines, uh, combining as he has done uh, with Rashford and Sterling and Ali, has shown him to be. Um, a very, very good player at the top level. His assist for Deli Ali's goal against Sweden was something they worked in the training ground that he executed perfectly uh, when it came to the actual match itself. So what I saw at Brighton has become, uh, he has flourished into that top pro who can produce it on the pitch. And in today's market, it's Raheem Sterling type money for me. So that's like 55, 60 million. Duncan? Yeah, final, final choice, I think... Um, not a player, a former player, a Gareth Southgate. Um, I think we've got to be aware that uh, as the hero of the nation, and uh, he will end up being the hero of the nation, whether um, England depart at the semi-final stage or whether they go all the way and win it, he is going to be um, a prime choice for any Premier League club um, who um, decide to change manager um, next season. Um, so... There's going to be a question there. What Southgate, whether he wants to remain um, as a football association's main man, um, with the the time he has being an international manager, whether he wants to have another go at the club game. Because what is for sure is, is he's going to be presented with opportunities that would never have been thought of before, um, given his track record as a as a club manager um, being sacked by Middlesbrough. Um, so watch the space and see what happens with Gareth Southgate um, post-World Cup. Do you think he'll leave Duncan on the basis that his stock is so high? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know Gareth Southgate very well. Um, I, um, so I, I don't know whether he would think that the potential of this team, particularly if they don't win the World Cup, um, the potential of this team to go on and and win or get close to winning the European Championship is such that given the groundwork he's done um, and the response he's received for it, he would want to um, explore that. Um, let me, let me put this with Duncan then. Let me win the World Cup. Like, yeah. Will he ever get, get to you know, a higher status than, no, that's than, true. than that? Let me put it this way then. Garth Southgate currently earns about less than one-third as England manager, of an average Premier League manager. His current contract is worth £1.8 million pounds a year gross, which means he's taken home about, what, £1.2 million, maybe slightly less. Your average Premier League manager is taking home around £5, £6 million. Pounds. Now, for the job he's done and what the riches he would be offered to manage a Premier League club, I don't think personally he's motivated by money. I don't. I think he is a... He's an honest and noble person. Um, uh, I was one of the first people to say that I didn't believe he'd make a successful England manager. So I, you know, will eat humble pie on that one. Um, but 
I wonder if he's a bit like Yogi Lu at Germany, who's been a mm. brilliant international manager. But maybe, maybe that's because that is his environment. And therefore, um, England winning the World Cup aside, um, then maybe he decides to stick with it to the, to the European Championships and, and, and then on to Qatar in 2022 because this is a team that he had a lot to do with when they were under-21s. And I think that's been quite a big part of the success that, he's, that they've created in this tournament. And therefore, growing with them, maturing with them to the next European Championships and maybe the next World Cup would be a thing that I think he would, he would find attractive. Duncan, I know playing the what-if game is fraught with difficulties, but what if someone hadn't bought Sam Allardyce a pint of wine? <laughs> I don't think England would be in the semi-finals of the World Cup, that's for sure. They, wouldn't be, they certainly wouldn't be playing the formation they're playing and they wouldn't have the players uh, that are with them at the behaving in the way that they're behaving and which has, has brought such popularity um, no. and respect. But let, I mean, Southgate. One one final thing is you know, and and you kind of alluding to Allardyce is is, is a good uh, good introduction to that. The England manager's job is usually the worst job in the country. Um, Southgate's managed to turn it into potentially the cushiest job in the country because he's not going to be sacked. Whatever happens, he's not going to be under pressure um, unless they have a disastrous European Championship qualifying game campaign which is virtually impossible under the, the new system so he's got two years of comfort with a squad he knows who respects them who've done things uh, with a positive press so i guess the logical <coughs> conclusion from all of that is his agent goes to the fa immediately after the world cup and ensures that he gets a salary yeah. um, re requisite to those achievements and he stays in the in the um, in the comfortable job or the relatively comfortable job for for two years and with reference, with reference to that pint of wine there, Johnny, are we going to see a headline in the Daily Telegraph saying, it was the Telegraph what won it? <laughs> <laughs> that would be something. Well, with that, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder, we're looking for a sponsor. So if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. We are building a community on that account, so everyone who follows will get a follow back. If you want to talk to us directly, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and more importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at SJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. The bigger the community, the more we can give you. It's that simple. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. Perhaps by then England will be World Cup winners. Until next time, thanks for listening.